that by looking at uh, three characters that were involved in the burial and resurrection narrative of Jesus. But I'm going to start in a slightly unexpected way by talking about gardens. Now, I love gardens. Um, I proposed in the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. Um, I'm house hunting at the moment, and we're looking for somewhere that has a garden. We're dreaming big. Um, and uh, the best leadership advice I've ever got was these little nuggets whilst doing gardening for Matt Clifton Brown. So if you ever want to grow in leadership, just volunteer to garden with him. There was a, a Catholic priest and ecologist called Thomas Berry who said that gardening is an active participation in the deepest mysteries of the universe. So I want to dig into those mysteries a little bit and see what gardens might have to do with Jesus and Easter, and I'm not just talking about doing an Easter egg hunt in the garden like I used to do as a child. A colorful garden is one of my favorite places to be. It's like the chaos and the wildness of nature meets the order and design of human creativity. It's beautiful and chaotic, but it's also peaceful and restorative. And I think there is a reason that God, when he created humans, first put them in a garden. It gave them uh, a place of beauty, and it gave them work to do, to tend the garden, to care for it. And I want you to think about that first garden that humans were put in as we read one of the, the many records from the Bible uh, of uh, the narrative of Jesus' uh, burial and resurrection. Uh, so this I'm reading from John. It's just one of numerous historical accounts uh, about the resurrection. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, 
They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, we have a scene of chaos and darkness. There's been an eclipse. There have been earthquakes. And this man a great teacher revered by many who'd made these claims to being God has been brutally executed. And night's closing in, which means that Sabbath, the day of rest, is on the way. And no one's going to be doing anything on the Sabbath, least of all dealing with dead bodies. And so Joseph of Arimathea knows that he needs to get buried quickly. We need to get this body off the cross. We can't leave him out for the whole of Sabbath. We need to to show this body the due respect. So they find a nearby garden and they pick it because it's nearby. The the authorities probably wanted somewhere a little more undignified, but they found a new tomb in a garden and they buried him there. And it was all chaotic and haphazard. But in the midst of this hurried and unplanned process, God is working out a divine plan. And it's not just a divine plan because he knew that Jesus wasn't going to stay dead. There was something about even the place where they buried him in a rush that carries great significance. And I just want to take a moment, aside from the the main thrust of my argument, just to say God is always doing this throughout the Bible. He's finding times of chaos and he's working through them. And if you're in a time of life now where everything feels up in the air and you don't feel like you have any grounding at all, Easter is at the very least a tale of God working through chaos, and he can do that in your life too. But it's so much more than that. And so in all of this chaos and darkness, God had a plan, even down to the place of burial. And it all comes back to the garden. And to understand this, we need to think about this first garden again, Eden. Now, Eden was the garden that God made at the start of it all to put humans in, a home for the creation that he made in his own image. And he created this place that was beautiful and blooming and full of life, and he gave it to them to tend over. The tree of life itself grew there, and best of all, God walked among man. It was a garden designed for life but humans wrecked it. They thought that they could be God. They, they did explicitly what God told them not to do because they wanted to be like God. It wasn't enough. These amazing things that God had given them wasn't enough. They thought, we want to be gods too. And they wrecked it. And in doing so, they were cast out of the garden. They were cast out of this place of life and they brought death to humanity. And that death has afflicted us ever since. This place designed for life had death egregiously brought into it. Cut to a few thousand years later, and there's Jesus. 
the only one who never rebelled against the Father, the only one for whom the curse of death wasn't deserved, died. And he's buried in a garden. And it's a garden with a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. In other words, a garden where there was no death, a miniature Eden. And God, by voluntarily sending his son to die and bringing death into this garden, where there had previously, and and a garden that had been designed for death, it was a tomb after all, ends up giving life to all of humanity because he had taken the punishment that had been meted out to humans ever since Adam, ever since Eden. And we see this total reversal here of death being brought into the place and as a result, life going out of it. You see, Jesus is the opposite of Adam. There's another part of the Bible that says, therefore, as one trespass, and that is Adam's sin in Eden, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So we have Adam over here. His one sin affects all of humanity and puts us under a curse. Condemnation for all men. Then we have Jesus, whose righteousness, whose sacrifice brings life to all who would accept it. Jesus' righteousness is far greater than the sin of humanity. And he offers it freely to us again. And in such a way that we can walk with God in the garden again. We can walk with him. Out of this garden designed for death came life for all who would believe. And there's another reason that the new tomb is important. It means that no other bodies were buried in it. And in this culture, one tomb was used for multiple bodies and they had little alcoves that the bodies were put into while they decomposed and then their bones were filed away and put into an ossuary, like a bone collection. But when uh, Jesus is laid into a new tomb, that means he is the only body there. So when the disciples and Mary come to see it and it's empty, there's no confusion. They don't have to root around the bodies for a bit. They don't have to see whether he's been moved. The empty tomb is an empty tomb. And whatever your worldview, you have to account for the empty tomb. At some point, you're going to have to wrestle with the fact that around 33 AD, Jesus' body disappeared, never reappeared, even though the authorities would have loved that. And if the body was around, they probably would have had easy access to that body. They wanted this quashed. But Jesus' body never reappeared. And then hundreds and hundreds of well-documented witnesses then claim to have seen the resurrected Christ. And then suddenly, these people that believed in a resurrected Christ started spreading the word. And we saw more appearances of the resurrected Christ. And we saw this church spreading peacefully in the face of great persecution when people were being killed for claiming to believe in the resurrected Christ, and it couldn't stop it. It couldn't stop the spread of this belief throughout the world. And today, there are dozens of us in here who believe in the resurrected Christ and who have felt his impact and his touch in our lives. So you're going to have to account for the resurrected Christ at some point, whatever your worldview. But even if 
you come to it and say, well, maybe he was resurrected, you might still be asking, so what? So let's look at the second part of that phrase, Jesus is alive, so what? Let's look at the others in the story. You see, there are lots of other people involved in the burial and resurrection of Jesus, witnesses, helpers, disciples. And John writes this gospel account very carefully. He knows uh, that people are going to be reading the whole thing. And so when he brings characters into the story, you're supposed to get flashbacks to when you saw them earlier in the story. You're supposed to pick up context clues. Ah, I remember that guy. Oh, she's that one. And so I just want to give a bit of context to some of these biblical figures because I think that actually they reflect us and our approach to Jesus in quite a lot of ways. For instance, Nicodemus, who I'm going to call the embarrassed good guy. He was someone who, when uh, the readers of John's gospel read the name Nicodemus, we immediately remember a story much earlier on in, in this Uh, in this gospel. And Nicodemus was a man who was part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling authority, uh, the religious authority that is at the time. Um, And he came to visit Jesus secretly at night. Uh, We saw even in this bit that um, Joseph and Nicodemus had been secret believers up until this point. You've got to wonder why secret? And it's because they were part of this group of people that elevated their righteousness, that made a a big deal out of the fact that they were the moral authority at the time, that that they were the ones doing things right and everyone else had to live up to that standard. And there was status that came with it and there were benefits that came with being part of the Sanhedrin. And let's just say it wouldn't look good for one of these holier-than-thou people to be seen trying to get wisdom from this upstart northerner who had been starting this small group of followers and was generally trying to um, tear the system down with his teaching and, and saying things that were wildly controversial. It did not look good. He was worried about his status and his reputation, so he had to come to Jesus at night. And even then, his intellectual prowess was challenged because he's saying, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says to him, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand this at first. He's like, how can I be born again? That doesn't make sense. I can't go back into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, you have to be born again through me. And that's when one of the most famous verses in the Bible comes up, which is this one here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We don't hear much about Nicodemus after this secret nighttime excursion to try and learn from Jesus. But I get the feeling from this story that he changed his mind. You see, this was a very public execution. And here was Nicodemus being part of his burial. This would have been visible. This would have been noticeable. So I can't help but feel that he got it, that actually Jesus' teaching about being born again was right. And so he's just like, do you know what? I'm going to leave my status and my reputation behind. Worse than that, he was touching a dead body, which means he's going to be excluded from religious uh, events and ceremonies for uh, like over a month to come because of cleanliness laws. And he's 
he's leaving that all behind. He's saying, I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about my status. This guy spoke the truth, and I'm going to honor him now with over 75 pounds, which at the time was so exorbitant of, of spices and embalming oils. I want to ask you, what is worth you setting aside your status or your dignity, or perhaps even being humble enough to set aside your intellect? And we're all prepared to do it for something that we care about enough. We're all prepared to lay aside our dignity or, or whatever if, if something really speaks to us. It, you know, it might be that you're like dancing in celebration at a football match because you care so much about this team that like your normally reserved self is going wild. I saw a video of um, an actress called Tiffany Haddish who uh, was being interviewed at the Oscars on the red carpet. You know, this place known for its glamour and its prestige. And someone pointed out that Meryl Streep was walking behind her a few yards away. She turned around, jumped over the barrier where, between the interviewing thing and hugged Meryl Streep, who clearly didn't know who this person was, and then walked on looking a little perturbed while Tiffany Haddish tried to continue the conversation. Because for... For this actress, it was like, there's one of my like, acting heroes. I, I am going to lose all my chill right now. I don't care that this is the Oscars. I don't care that I'm in like, a multi-thousand pound dress. I'm going to go hop over this barrier and tell Meryl Streep how much I love her. What are you prepared to just like, say, do you know what? I, I'm going to leave behind my reservations because this is actually so much more important than that. Nicodemus realized that. It may have taken him some time. It may have even taken the death of Jesus for him to realize that. But he was prepared to leave his status behind. You see, if Jesus is alive, it's worth giving up on all of your pretensions. It's worth humbling yourself and saying, perhaps I don't understand it all, but I'm going to put my faith in this one who's defeated death. It's worth humbling yourself and saying, do you know what? My reputation is not as important as putting my trust in this one who defeated death. And this is true for both Christians and non-Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, it's worth, like, you actually do stand to lose something. You stand to lose a bit of reputation by putting your trust in Jesus. But when you find something that's worth it, you give it all up. You leave it behind. You jump over the barriers and you say, I'm putting my trust in him. And if you're a Christian, maybe that means being a bit less ashamed of your faith for you. Maybe that means being more open about your faith. Maybe it means being a bit less reserved in worship or in prayer. It's worth leaving these things behind. Then there's another figure in the story, Peter, the disgraced rebel. And we see Peter, he's a familiar character in this story. He's one of Jesus' disciples and in fact one of his closest friends. But he's also one of the people that gets it wrong the most. So at one point he's telling Jesus, oh you don't need to go through with the crucifixion. And because we're people reading smugly with hindsight, we're like, Peter was wrong. Even though we probably would have said the same thing. Peter's the guy that chopped off the ear of a soldier in the garden and Jesus had to rebuke him and say, no, you can't live by the sword. You can't trust in violence. And Jesus healed that soldier's ear. And Peter is the one who 
only a couple of days earlier, was denying Jesus. Peter is the one who, when Jesus was at his most desperate, in his darkest hour, was saying, no, I never knew the guy. And I don't know what you think's unforgivable, if anything, but you might have on that list such a close betrayal by such a close friend. So it's easy to see why Peter might be running to the tomb. He was probably deeply ashamed of what he had done. And if he'd heard the body's not there, maybe he had some hope, some hope of a second chance. And he sees, he sees the grave closed there. And it says the disciples believed and went back at that moment. They might not have even knew, known what they believed, but they knew something was up. They knew that this, the death wasn't the end of the story. And if you keep reading John, we find that Jesus is alive and he restores Peter. And he says to him, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Peter goes from a place of being the, um, the disgraced rebel, the one who denied that, Jesus ever, that he ever knew Jesus, to being one of the founding fathers of the church, one of the people that took the church into the new era of this new covenant. We love stories of forgiveness and redemption. We love it in fiction when bad guys turn good. You know, uh, Darth Vader, for instance, one of the most iconic villains ever. The reason his story is so powerful is because at the end, he, he is redeemed. He, he saves his son at the cost of his own life. We see forgiveness there. Um, I must confess, I watch a lot of a show called Once Upon a Time. And I bring this up to go back to my point about leaving your dignity behind for things you care about. Because I've just lost all of my dignity as an arts critic by saying I watch this show. Um, because I care about this... <laughs> But one of the reasons I love this kind of terrible show is that um, it's, it's about heroes and villains. That's the ongoing theme throughout the whole thing. But the villains often don't stay villains, and each one of them is given the chance to turn good again. And it's just a really compelling narrative. And I'm sure you can think of other examples of stories that you've read or films that you've seen where it's like, I love the fact that this character went from bad to good. But so often we're actually not ready to accept that for ourselves or for other people. Forgiveness is, is hard, redemption is hard, and when people let you down, or when you know that you've let others down, that forgiveness is difficult to accept. But if Jesus is alive, then it means that no one is beyond forgiveness, you included. Peter was restored from his rebellion to a place of honor. And that forgiveness is available to all of you. And so many of us in this room have already experienced that forgiveness and keep experiencing it every day. And perhaps you're here and you're a Christian and you, you know, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but I'm just haunted by this thing in my past. I know that I rejected Jesus recently. I know that two days ago I was not doing what Jesus would ask of me. And you, you, it follows you around. But 
look at Peter's restoration. He runs to the tomb and he finds there an empty tomb. He finds a resurrected Jesus and he finds restoration. And then finally, the third person that I want to look at is Mary Magdalene, the despairing friend. And it's easy to see why she's despairing. When the disciples leave, she stays and weeps because her friend has died. We know that they were close. Jesus cast demons out of her, it said, and um, her name, Mary Magdalene, was probably a nickname, an affectionate term. And Mary Magdalene was just one of countless people whose lives were touched by Jesus. And so it, it seems right to weep. You know, when the angels ask, why are you weeping? I sometimes think, isn't it obvious? And more than that, it seems like the death of her friend has been compounded by the fact that the body's been stolen. That's what she thinks. She says they've taken him, and I don't know where they've taken him. And you know, it is actually easier to despair than to hope. So I sympathize with Mary a lot, standing at the tomb, weeping, probably at the darkest point in her entire life. But if Jesus is alive, then it means that there is hope in the face of despair. And to all of you here who are prone to despair, trust in the victory of Jesus. Because the tomb wasn't empty because his body had been stolen. The tomb was empty because he had defeated death and he had come back to life. And all of a sudden, hope breaks into a hopeless situation. Easter is always going to be a little bit difficult for me because last year, it was on Easter Sunday, that I found out that uh, my brother had died. And I came here this morning thinking, I'm not sure I can uh, sing about death having lost its sting. And then God said to me, actually, that's exactly what you need to be singing about today. And it's, it's good for me that those two things can now go hand in hand. That while I will remember my brother, I will also remember that death has lost its thing, that it wasn't the end for him, and that I'll see him again. It's easier to despair in a situation like that. It's easier to look at it and just think, this is an unmitigated tragedy. tragedy. But I can choose hope because of Jesus. I can choose to hope in this resurrection. I can choose to hope in the risen Christ. And I do. I think it's fitting that Mary thought that Jesus was a gardener. Because I like to think that Jesus was just sitting in the garden, enjoying it. You see, you don't hang around in gardens and tend to your garden in a time of war. It's something that you do when you're at peace. And Jesus had won at this point. So I like to think he was just taking a moment, resting in the victory that he'd won. Maybe he was even doing some gardening, which was my, why Mary got confused. She saw him and thought he was the gardener. 
And it was only when he called her name, Mary, that suddenly something unlocked in her, a revelation. This is Jesus. Jesus is alive and that changes everything. Maybe that applies to you here today. Maybe you have the role of Jesus totally confused. Maybe you think he was just a teacher or a prophet, perhaps. Today, he's calling your name. He's speaking to you specifically. He knows your name and he wants to reveal to you that he is alive, that he has life for you. And you know, Mary wasn't entirely wrong in thinking that, uh, that Jesus was the gardener because Jesus himself referred to God the Father as the gardener. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. I am the vine, you are the branches, you the church are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is part of the hope we have in the risen Jesus. That actually we can be grafted into Jesus. We can be grafted into this vine and we can bear fruit. We can have life. Life can grow up. Where previously we were dead, we can be brought back to life and be a part of this amazing garden and we can we can grow and flourish and be who we were created to be. What a hope. And then we see in Revelation a final garden, the hope that goes beyond all of the hopes that we have at the moment. John, who even wrote this, wrote Revelation, this, this look at the world from God's perspective with this flash forward to the future. And it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is not done in the Christian story. It wasn't just in Eden. It's going to be there again in the new creation. And God promises that because Jesus rose from the dead, death will be defeated. Death has been defeated, but one day it will just become a distant memory. The curse of death that has afflicted us since that first garden will be got rid of entirely when the tree of life is growing in the new creation. And it's going to be the healing of the nations. Don't put your trust in anything else beyond this, this hope that Jesus has won for us. That is the hope of the world, the future that Jesus won on the cross and in his resurrection. And it is the greatest tonic to despair that you can imagine. And Jesus is offering you that hope today. My point is this. Whatever angle you're approaching the resurrection from, it is an event that demands a response. You can ignore it or reject it, but make no mistake, those are choices. You have to choose to do that. Or you can accept it and say, Jesus has triumphed. And actually, that means hope. That means forgiveness. 
That means leaving behind my status and my reputation. And I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. But the problem is there's no middle ground. It has to be this one or this one. It's either ignoring or rejecting it or it's accepting it and giving your life to this glorious truth. Christians live in the fullness of this triumph. Don't give in to despair. This is good news. Don't strive to be a good guy with a good reputation. That's not going to get you anywhere. Don't let your past rebellions haunt you because the forgiveness is for everyone. Instead, stop. Rest in the garden with the resurrected Jesus. Walk with him. This is a place that blooms with hope and joy and life. It's the greatest news for humanity ever. And it's for everyone. The rebels, the hopeless, the good, the bad. Could I get the band back up, please? You know, all of Christianity hinges on this story of a resurrected Christ. It's Jesus had to come back from the death, had to come back from death in order to defeat death, in order to win this future for us, in order for us to be free from death too. But he did. There was um, a poet called John Updike who wrote a piece called Seven Stanzas for Easter. I'm not going to read all seven, just one of them. And it says, Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making, an event, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. You see, this is no metaphor. It's no fanciful story. This is death defeated and life without end. This is the greatest victory in history. It's the triumph that Jesus invites you all to be a part of. It is hope breaking into hopelessness. It is light breaking into darkness. It is forgiveness for those who believe they don't deserve it. It is rest for the weary. It is victory for the defeated. It's for me. It's for you. Jesus is alive and that changes everything.